Today, the, uh, the scripture passage that I'll be preaching from is uh, Luke 5, 37 through 39. And I will read it to you now. No one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, for they say the old is better. So for those of you who don't know me well, I'm a, I'm a wine hobbyist, and I have a cellar, and my friends and I, uh, like last night, uh, Celia and I actually had our book launch party for our third book, Woo! and you know, some friends who know, know us well, they, they brought their wine in a bag so that we could blind taste it. And you, you have to guess where, when, and what. So like, this is a Bordeaux from France, 2016, that kind of thing. And uh, so I, I love wine, and so I can appreciate this passage. And uh, when you think about wine back in Jesus' day, wine was actually a really big deal. It's actually the most mentioned plant in the Bible. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, and Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine, as we all know. And uh, what's amazing about that one, if you, if you know wine and how hard it is to make a good wine, is that the, 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 matri- the patriarch of the, of the night said this was, this was the best wine he's had like, in ages, right? Uh, especially when you think of their technology back then and how they made it. Back, back then, it was actually safer to drink wine than water. Because the, the process would kill any like, of the bacteria. And uh, so they've, they've done a lot of like, archaeological tests and DNA. And they found about 70 native varieties of, of grapes uh, back in, in Israel in those days. 20 of which were used for wine, they figure. Red and white, but mostly red wine. And with their techniques, the way they would make this red wine, it would come out big and dark. Kind of looking like blood, which is... Uh, like more even than ours today. And so that's kind of when Jesus starts talking about the blood being, you know, his literal, like the wine being blood. It's because of this connection and how common it was. But as I was saying, the way they made wine back then wasn't with all our modern technology. They would basically have a big stone vat that they would out in the fields and they'd smush all the grapes in that and let it drain into whatever they could afford. And if they were wealthy, they would get these big clay pots and seal it up and put it underground. And it could actually last for a while. But most people were not wealthy and their wine didn't last. It only lasted at the mo- less than a year for most of them before it went bad. So they didn't have glass bottles like we have today. The British invented those in the 1800s. So before that, you couldn't really get a seal to make it last more than unless you put it in a clay pot underground, it wouldn't last that long. So what, what would age, you know, within, within four or six months, the wine would probably be at its peak for almost anybody. And so this is what we're talking about. Like, at the beginning, the wine wouldn't really taste good at all. It, it, you know, it's fresh. It'd be basically grape juice with some of the other stuff they would put in there. But it would improve quite a bit over that little bit of time. And for, for someone who, who today we can appreciate wine in glass bottles, we can, we can enjoy wine 20 years later and, it's, and it could be great. But back then they didn't have that. So uh, without a good seal, your wine basically turns into vinegar in the air. So, so 
what they would do, a lot of what people would do, was they would get these skins, these wineskins. And the, what was common, it, and we, when we think wineskin in our modern day, we think of this Spanish bota, and this little kind of personal thing. And that's not what we're talking about. We're actually talking about storing wine in a goat skin, like a whole goat. And they would, they would tie off the arms and the, the legs and, and the neck and everything. They, they'd put the new wine in it, and then this wine would ferment, and after like four months or so, the skin is getting stretched, stretched, stretched. You know, and, and, and by the time you, you drink all that wine out of that skin, you're, that skin, you're not going to reuse that skin because it's already stretched to its limit, right? You're not going to put the next new batch of wine in the next year in it, right? So that's kind of the metaphor that Jesus is saying. He's saying, all right, you don't put new wine into old wineskins. It'll just burst up. But then he finishes with this little line, which is a little confusing. You could probably put it back up there. Verse 39, if we have it. Well, it's be done. It's fine. I'll read it. He says, Nobody, after drinking the old one, wants the new, for they say, the old is better. Which, of course, if you drink wine, you could appreciate. But what do we make of all this? Well, in the context of this passage... They were, people were challenging Jesus about, like, hey, how come your disciples aren't fasting? And he starts going on about wine and wineskins. But he's really talking about change. And he's talking about how I've got a new teaching, and it's not going to fit into your old wineskin. You, you're going to have to get a new wineskin to put the new teaching in. Uh, your old wine might taste good, and because of that, it's going to be really hard to make this transition to a new one. I get it. So that's kind of what he's saying. Uh, as I've gotten older, I've noticed that change gets harder. And so Jesus' challenging words ring true to me even more as I'm aging. I think change is hard at any stage, but when I see my kids, who are sitting back there doing I don't know what, <laughs> making noise... <laughs> When I see them, they have new teachers every year. They're like learning new things all the time. I think they're eager to try new things. And I like to, to try some new things too, but not that much. Not as much as them. I don't want a new job every year. Uh, I was actually laid off at the beginning of this year, if you didn't know. I've been unemployed about half the year. I've been with a new company now for two, year, two months. And I'll tell you, I did not like that. <laughs> I did not like that change one bit. Uh, it, was, uh, it was not an easy time. So when you start to take seriously what Jesus is talking about, about some of the change that he's trying to put us into, and it starts putting us into these uncomfortable places, time and again he would say things like, take up a cross and follow me, or sell all that you have, give the money to the poor and follow me. He'd say, he'd say some difficult stuff that would make you want to put your neck out there and, and make mistakes. Well, I, t I titled this sermon, Falling in Love. Uh, I'm sure you've probably figured out at this point, I'm not talking about an emotional falling in love with someone. But I'm interested in this idea of the falling. Because uh, falling is kind of like when we, when we stumble, when we take risks and we fall, we fall on our faces. And I actually think Jesus wants us to fall and wants us to fail. And that's a part of growing up and becoming 
more human and more designed the way he wants us to be. Uh, there's a great book that I've, I've been reading, uh, rereading, called Falling Upward. It's by Richard Rohr. And he's kind of looking at, he's looking at the spirituality of the, the second half of life. And, and his argument is that in the first half of life, we're learning to be successful. Uh, we're, we're growing in leaps and bounds, and we're, we're learning our limits, and we're contributing to the world. And at some point, we shift. Uh, or if we don't, we, we kind of become, in our older age, self-absorbed and narcissistic. So in order to age well, we have to fail. We have to be humbled. When the time is right, we need to start over. We need to get new wineskins to put new wine in so that we can mature again in this new way that God has for us. And this is a yearly process, at least for wine. So I don't know how often it happens for us, but it, it does happen a lot. We can't just keep doing the same things that we've been doing the way we've been doing it for the rest of our lives. We have to actually grow and we have to we have to become humbled, and uh, but it's hard because this 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 last line here, with the old wine tastes better. We might taste the new wine and go, yeah, no, that's not good at all. This old wine is like it's like a 2020 Chianti. It's like it's you know been aged for a couple of years. It's so much better than this new thing that's just kind of like bright and. It hasn't matured yet. But we need to do it. We need to get to that place that Paul got to in his later years where he, he, pleaded, he pleaded to God. He says, God, I'm, I'm getting to this place of serious weakness. I don't even think I can keep doing what I've been doing because of this weakness in my life. And it's in 2 Corinthians 12. And God's response to him in prayer ended up being, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I'm going to uh, recount the story of the, of the, of the, the story of the prodigal son, because I think it illustrates really well this dynamic. So, uh, you know, we know the story well. The father has two sons, and he's got a lot of land, a lot of wealth, and one of them says, hey, I'm, I'm done with you, I'm sick of this, I'm going to take, can I have my half of the inheritance now? Which is basically like saying, I wish you were dead takes off and splurges it all, and who knows how long it took him. And then, you know, he's partying, and then uh, suddenly the money runs out, and life gets hard. Now, let's think about his situation, okay? So before this, uh, I can imagine a person of that kind of wealth probably didn't actually have to put in a good hard day's work. Uh, you know, they didn't have to earn blisters, you know. They, they had people doing that that they could oversee, right? Uh, and he probably, you know, if he was late, eh, well, I'm the dad's son. Like, eh, it's, not like, it's not like somebody who shows up late and they, they don't get, you know, the same amount of pay that day. And they don't eat as well that day. So he, did, he didn't learn all these important lessons. So someone from, from coming from that wealth who doesn't have all those failures and hard lessons of life is not as really as a desirable worker, right? And so he starts going out looking for work and nobody... Nobody wants him. He's like a spoiled child who always had it all, right? And what, what people actually want is good, hard, hard workers who've actually learned the hard way how to be reliable and how to put in good effort. He wasn't that person yet, and so the only job he could find was to feed pigs. 
And uh, if, you, if you think about in that time, not only would have that been really dirty and disgusting, but he was a Jew, so it would have been unholy. So this is the bottom of the bottom, right? The worst case scenario. And the pay was so low that he couldn't actually feed himself well. So finally, he's had a big failure. And it took this experience of getting out and splurging it all to get to this point of failure. Without this failure, though, without this, him getting to this humbled place, the story wouldn't have any point, but it does, and it continues. He comes to his senses. He realizes that his father's servants are eating better than his pigs, and he's like, and, and he's wanting that food. So he, he goes, all right, I'm just going to come back, and I'm going to apologize. And he rehearses it. And he's basically saying, you know, take me back as a servant. I'm scum. I'm worthless. So he's come to this great place of apology. But as, as the story goes, the father doesn't even let him get the apology out. He robes him and throws him a huge party. And, uh, and so the, the father's extravagant love immediately stands out to us in this story. And I think a lot of times when we hear this story, we think about the Father's extravagant grace and the Father's extravagant love. And I think we should focus on that because that's important for all of us to hear. We should also hear about this son who, who went off and, and basically ruined you know, things by splurging all this money and wasting. Because in some ways he did a great thing too. And it was the wrong risk. But he took a risk with his life, failed, and now... He's in a much better place for it. He's actually grown into a new wineskin. He's now more mature and he's thoughtful. And he's learned a lot of important life lessons. And I bet you that he was a lot better person to work for after that. With the servants. Maybe even would help the servants instead of just standing by and watching. But then Jesus doesn't end the story there. And that's kind of what's really interesting. And I think it, it hones in at the end. And it ends with... The other brother, the one who was doing everything right. And the old brother was basically living the life of the old wineskins, right? Life was good, wasn't it? And he says, it says in the passage, he was out working in the field. But, you know, I don't, I don't think he was, like, picking the wheat himself. I mean, he might have been. But, but he was definitely overseeing people. That was his job. And so... The, older, the other brother definitely knows life lessons, knows important things, but he actually never has gotten to that point yet of failing and becoming humbled, falling flat on his face and needing to reinvent his life. So he gets to the party and he's jealous. Now, if, he, he, if, he'd, if he'd already learned these important lessons, he probably would have had the same reaction as the father, right? But he didn't learn these lessons. He's got the old wine. And uh, he gets jealous. He says, hey, he ran off with half your fortune and whittled it away, and now you're throwing a party for him? What about me? Why don't I get the party? But the father says, I'll, I'll read this because I, I want to get it exactly right. My son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. That's the mic drop, end of the story. So God doesn't want us to make bad decisions and run off and waste our lives. But God does want us to take risks and actually to risk everything. To, to, to try the new wineskins 
put the new wine in, the new teaching, the new way of doing things that he was talking about. I hope that when we fall and when we fail, it's for the right reasons, but even failing for the wrong reasons can give us those lessons that we need in our, in our growth as, as people. The key is that we actually do return to God and we grow in our humility and our deepening and our understanding of our place. Um, the interesting thing about falling is you can't learn not to fall unless you fall. And you can't learn to ride a bike without falling. You, you'll never learn to have balance unless you've been off balance. So if you just play it safe, you never allow yourselves to fall, you'll actually be off balance without realizing it. Uh, those, those many months that I was unemployed, it was very humbling, I'll tell you. And I had, I had people telling me after a couple of months into it, why not just take this job? You're, you're totally qualified. And I'm like, well, I'm overqualified. <laughs> and I was holding out for the right job. But man, that was humbling, you know, to, to wait. But I'm glad I waited and held out. Um, I'm, I did get a job that is, is, a, is a good job. I'm a, if you don't know what I do, I work in the software industry. I'm a designer and I'm a leader and I basically oversee and design software being made. I was interviewing with Microsoft and Ford and all sorts of companies you'd recognize and I was in final interviews with all these candidates and they kept choosing someone else. I actually applied to almost 400 companies. I interviewed with over 40 and Michelle would listen to me on these video calls and say, how do you think it went? And I was like, I think it went well, but they all go well. And I'm sick and tired of telling people what I do. I just want to do what I do. I'm, you know, I'm tired of that. And it was a really low time. But I did learn an important lesson. I'm sure I learned lots of things. But I think there was one really critical thing that I learned in that time. You could probably guess what it is. It's humility. So... You know, not getting those 399 other jobs, getting all those emails without him even talking to me to say, uh, we found someone else who we think fits this position better. You know, that's humbling. You know, it makes me remember, oh, I'm, I'm not actually the greatest person in the world. <laughs> you know? I'm, and even though I am qualified, I'm one of many who are qualified, you know. And, and now that I do have a job, boy, I'm thankful. Now, I, I work, uh, it's, it's not my dream job at all. It's the insurance industry, but probably a third of us, based on what I know of the software, about a third of us have interacted with this software at some point, uh, whether we know it or not. And for most of us, it's just a quick yearly whatever, you know, reinstating your things. But it's, it's not the glamorous to me, but boy, am I thankful for it, especially going into a recession and now, I'm here, I'm, I'm, I'm in this work role, and I've got these young people who I'm, I'm working with and managing who don't know that lesson yet. <laughs> and I'm needing to confront them and encourage them and exhort them to step up their game. Why aren't you bringing your best? You know, you should put your best in everything you do. You know, I can't tell them Jesus said that, but I <laughs> want to say it. <laughs> because that's... An important life lesson. We've got to, we've got to learn these things. And, and me going through that time of, of difficulty gave me even more drive to be more bold to even just say it like it is with people. So I don't want them to waste their lives. So 
That was a time where I did not seek out growth. I did not seek out a new wineskin, but I was given one. But other times I've sought it out, and, and I've really said, you know, God, I want you to, to teach me something new. I want you to put me, you know, in a circumstance where you're going to, like, help me to shape and, and be deeply involved in, in what you're doing. And one of those times uh, was when I was 20, and I was living in Costa Rica. I was an exchange student, and I'd been praying, you know, God, God, you know, I want you to, to, do, to do something powerful with me. And I'd been going to this downtown uh, evening service for worship, and I brought these two American classmates, these girls who were students with me, and we had this, you know, nice worship service. And then afterward, we're hanging around downtown at night in Costa Rica, which, you know, can be a little sketchy. And uh, I was like, well, let's go around the corner for ice cream. And we go around, and we're standing there with our ice cream, and this 16-year-old street boy comes up, and he starts chatting with me. And he had this Dominican accent. I could not, I could barely, I could understand half of it. But he starts telling me his whole life story of how he's, like, been, you know, you know, he and his sister were, like, orphans and living on the street, and he ended up in Costa Rica, and... And he's telling me all this, and I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I supposed to do with this? And I keep looking over at these girls who are like amazed and like eyes big as I'm talking to this guy. And I was like, did you understand what he said? He's like, no. So I kept trying to like understand what he was saying. His accent was so thick. And so I, I, at some point I was like, can I, he, oh, he said, I thought he said that he was with this other group of these street kids. And I, I think what he said is that somebody killed somebody. And he's like, I want out. I need something. I need, I need something. I said, you need, you need God. He says, yes, yes, yes. I said, let me take you back to this church. Maybe there's someone there who can understand you. And we go back, like, the two blocks. And, of course, it was all dark and no one there. And I'm just like, God, I'm freaking out here. This is what, you, this is what I asked for. But, oh, my gosh, what do I do? And, and I keep feeling over my, the, the shoulder, you know, like, like I'm, I'm being watched, you know, I'm being kind of like judged, you know, like not judged, but like I kind of felt like this pressure of I want to do this right. And uh, so I just, I said a prayer and it was like instant. I felt like the sense of like, give them all your money, give them your Bible and tell them to read First Corinthians and, and say a blessing over it. I was like, <laughs> what? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> That's ridiculous. I was like, and I was like, how much money do I have? And I kind of looked at my, you know, my mom made me these, she sewed these sneak pockets into my jeans. And so I kind of looked in there, I had 50 US dollars. I was like, I'll give him 20. <laughs> and then, uh, and I gave him the 20 and I'm telling him this and I was like, looking at this Bible, I just bought this Bible. <laughs> I wasn't, I couldn't give it to him. I just bought it. You know, it cost me like $20. I was like, uh, I'll just tell him to read 1 Corinthians. And I was like, I don't even know what's in 1 Corinthians. But that, that was like a, a, a leap for me to tell him to read 1 And he's like looking at me like he has no idea what I'm talking about. And I said, well, God bless you. And, and he just kind of looked at me like, that's it? And he walks off. And I'm watching him go and thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm like failing right in this minute. Like I didn't do everything that I know I mean, how, how do you know, right? I just felt like the Spirit was just telling me this is what I had to do. But there was always that second guessing that happens, right? Plus, it's like I'm under watchful eyes. Like, 
Whatever that means. I mean, I was 20. I guess I, I cared about that more than I do now. And when I, by the time I left Costa Rica, I had $30 in my pocket. And that Bible, actually, I ended up not using because it was like a, the King James version of Spanish, which I had so much trouble understanding. So I bought a more contemporary Spanish Bible, which was much more helpful for me. So I ended up never using it. At $30, I didn't give the guy, and I had a Bible I didn't give him that I never used. And I tell you, I mean, I was so choked by the time I left. I was like, that's never happening again. I'm never going to go halfway. And, I, and it makes me sad, and I pray for this. I pray for this guy to this day, uh, that God would, God would continue to do whatever God was doing in his life in that time. But see, God wanted me to step out and to have these failures because then it taught me that, okay, you're going to fail, but then you can, you can recover. You can recover. You can grow. You, you can handle the new wine and a new wineskin. You're just growing into it. It just takes a little time. God actually wants us to do this kind of thing, to put our necks out there and fail and do it in this love relationship. Do it with a motivation of love. When, when we fail for the reason of love driving us, it is so much more powerful for, for what God is doing in this world. And the failing is okay and it's necessary, but when we take risks, especially ones that involve love, it can really hurt when it fails. And, and we will get hurt. And this is, I think, why it's so hesitating to try again and again to put ourselves out there. And I know from experience this hurts. And um, we just had this happen to us, actually, in the last couple of years. That we, we took in this woman who was moving here, couldn't find a place. We, we let her live with us. We gave her money. We fed her. We, we supported her. Finally, she got her own place. And we gave her furniture. And one day, she just suddenly turned on us, started calling us names, and said, I'm done being around you, good riddance. And we just, we were just, I'm still hurt as I tell you this story. I'm just like, how, why, what? And then, and, and then you're tempted when you get hurt like that to not do it again. But you can't stay in the old wine. You can't stay in the old wineskin. You gotta keep, every year there's a new harvest. You gotta keep doing it. You gotta keep putting yourself out there in love. And I, I know that you know, nothing in life is gonna be easy, right? But we actually, I would argue that we need this idea of a new wineskin for every new thing in our lives. And we need to constantly fall flat on our faces in order to grow more deeply and more maturely, like a good wine is supposed to grow. Wine is new every year. God's mercies are new every morning. God's mercies are new every morning. So here we are. How ready are we to go beyond our routines and our comforts and truly welcome this fresh start that Jesus would have for us? Let's pray. God, I know you're doing such amazing things in all of our lives here right now. And I just pray that you would open our hearts to what that looks like for us today. What does a, a new wineskin, a new way of doing things look like? 
What do you want us to do to put ourselves out there and risk ourselves in love? Open us to that and give us the boldness to try, to fail, and to yet know that you're there, full of grace and mercy, ready to help us again and get through it and be even more, more deeply who you've called us to be. Amen.